I was born in 1991, which means that I was raised under the compassionate and ever-present shadow of the self-esteem movement. You've heard of that before, of course. This is the teaching that every person needs to have a positive self-esteem. The way you think about yourself needs to be positive and needs to not be negative, so that way everybody feels good and everybody is going to be good to those around them. And I'm whatever its merits, right? I'm sure that there's some good to that, and we'll talk about some of that in a minute. But by those who are like me, who grew up under this stuff, every, every school assembly, every poster that every teacher had in class with a whale jumping over the moon, and every, every Saturday morning cartoon special, like it was all about that. And there have been two very strong reactions, and I'm going to lay those out for you. The first one is by those who have swallowed that wholesale and defined their whole lives by it now. And they have now prioritized their own self-love. We've gone from self-esteem to self-love. To the point of narcissism and insufferability. People who have made themselves, Jason and I were joking before, before church, they, they are the protagonist of the world story. The rest of us are just background characters. They are the sun around which the universe orbits. And you can find these people online. They, they have Instagram accounts, they have TikTok accounts, and they are the ones that go to Washington and demand lots of free stuff because look at me, look how great I am, I need this, right? That's, that's reaction number one. Reaction number two are people that are more like me, who are very honest about themselves and about others to the point maybe even of cynicism. They say, I'm supposed to esteem myself, but look at myself. I know what I'm like. I look at myself in the mirror. I see the things I do. And well, how can you say everybody's supposed to have self-esteem? Look at that guy. Look at her over there. Why should they feel good about themselves, right? And that have then come to despise that kind of, that drippy pop psychology kind of stuff. And that really want nothing to do with it. And it's like, just leave me alone and let me live my life. It's probably not going to be a great life, but at least I'm going to get to live it. And... I, both of those things, I think, show the fundamental weakness of that movement, self-esteem. Because, here's why, we need to have a stronger foundation for self-assurance, feeling good about yourself, being happy with who you are. You need a stronger foundation for that than simply existing. Because everybody exists. And you, you see this in the Incredibles movie, right? Everybody's special, and the kid rolls his eyes. That's why saying nobody's special, right? If we're all the same, and everybody's equally wonderful, and everybody's an equally unique snowflake, then what's the difference? We're all exactly the same, right? You need a stronger foundation for all that than simply being, right? And what's so wonderful about the gospel is that in Christ, you have that reason. You have a reason to be happy. You have a reason to feel special and to feel loved because you are loved. There's one thing that says you need to esteem yourself or as all us Christian kids learned growing up, you can say God made you special and he loves you very much. That's VeggieTales if you don't know what that is. <laughs> the world has recognized the need that people need to feel loved. They need to feel special. They need to feel cared about. But only Christ can meet that need through the gospel. So the world was on to something, but they were not up to the challenge. But Jesus is. And that's what we're learning about in this passage today. So let's read verses 6 through 8 together again, and, and we'll go a little section at a time here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, this paragraph opens with the word for, which is an explanatory word. So you've got to look backwards. What is he talking about? The last thing Paul said was that the love of God has been poured out for us by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're so used to that. You've got to catch how profound that is to say that God loves you. It even sounds like an arrogant thing to say, doesn't it? Well, God, the maker of heaven and earth that spun the universe, he loves me. That's, that sounds a little prideful, doesn't it? 
And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And there are some atheists that have a lot of fun with this whole idea. They'll say things like, it's like if you met your favorite sports hero or you met the president and he shook your hand and said something very kind to you and moved on and now you think you're best buddies. It's like he doesn't really care about you. But Paul said God loves us. So he's going to explain himself, which is why he has the word for. It's like prove it that God loves me. He hangs our assurance of God's love on the fact that Jesus Christ has died. The cross is the demonstration, to use the old word from verse 8, the demonstration of God's love. That Christ died for, doesn't say for all the most wonderful people in the whole wide world, all the special people. No, he says, for while we were still weak, he died for the ungodly, for sinners. Later in the passage, he's going to call us enemies of God. There's a ramp up, right? You're not just weak, but you're ungodly. You're not just ungodly, you're an active sinner. And that makes you an enemy of God. But Jesus died for us. And that was the whole point of all these earlier chapters, is what does the death of Jesus mean? The death of Jesus propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God so that God could justify those who believe. We've got to carry all of this train of thought forward so that the next sections make sense. To be justified means that God has counted you righteous. He's put righteousness in the column of your ledger And that's only possible because Jesus died to wipe away the wrath of God. And that's how we know that God loves us because God sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. And as Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's one of the profound statements of the New Testament, isn't it? Greater love is no one than this, that he'd lay down his life for his friends. But hold on. Here's the confusion. And this is why we need this paragraph here. No greater love is anyone than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said those who are his friends are those who keep his commandments. But Paul spent chapter 1, 2, and 3 proving that none of us keep his commandments, which means none of us are friends of God. So then how can you say Jesus died for us? You've got to get this. He lays it out in verse 7. Let me read it again. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. It's like, you might be a great person, but I ain't dying for you. It's like, yo, you've got kids. We've all got kids, man. You know, I'm not dying for you, okay? And it's although I suppose for a good man, like a really good person like Gandhi. Oh, okay, we'll die for him. Die for George Washington, maybe. Like, it's, it's an admirable thing to do, but nobody's under any obligation to die for somebody else. No one expects you to give up your life in favor of somebody else, right? When when you're on the airplane, what do they say? Put your own mask on first, and then you can put the mask on the kids if you get around to it, you know? (laughs) Or when your house is burning, like, you know, they'll even say, if you're out of the fire, don't go back in unless you're you're prepared and you're equipped, because the whole point is save your life. Don't, Don't risk your life trying to save somebody else. We get this as people. It's admirable to die for somebody, but it's certainly not something that is, we're expected to do. It's a tragedy when people die and we, we are, celebrate them as heroes when somebody dies for them, but you're under no obligation to do that. And there's an idea that's often taught, and I'm going to put this out there where I've seen this mostly. Mostly this has been at, for young women in the church. They hear this idea that you are so wonderful and special and beautiful that's why Jesus died for you. And they'll say, you are God's princess. You're like Cinderella or Rapunzel. You were in the castle and you were hidden away and God knew how beautiful and wonderful you were. And he got on his white stallion and he rode to the rescue and, and he saved you. That, doesn't that make you feel special? And that's nice. But the opposite is true. It says that Jesus Christ died when? While we were still sinners. So, respectfully, you're not Cinderella in this story. You're the ugly stepsister. Their names are Anastasia and Drizella. I know this because I have a three-year-old daughter. And by the way, we were at Disney World this year, and they had two ladies dressed up in costumes as the ugly stepsisters. And that takes some courage to apply for that job, doesn't it? Or maybe like, you know, you know we don't, we're, all, we're all set for Cinderella's and Snow White's now. But what we really need are some ugly stepsisters. And y'all, y'all are perfect for this. 
but I digress. <laughs> While we were still sinners, you, you're, Paul just explained that we're all hopelessly corrupt in our sins. There's nothing worth saving about you. In fact, you deserve judgment and wrath. You're destined for hell. So this brings us back to our question again. Why would God die for you? You can't just say, because I'm so great. Because you're not. Well, we know the answer to this question, though. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the love of God that motivated him to save you. And I thought you said, wait a minute, I thought, I thought you just said God didn't love me. Oh, I didn't say that. I said you didn't deserve the love of God. But he loves you anyway. Isn't that a better story? I said, well, you're, you're just a diamond in the rough. And God saw the little glint of diamond and wanted to break it. No, 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 you're just rough. That's all you are. You're, you're rough. And God says, I love them anyway. It's not that you've done so many wonderful things and you're so nice and kind and sweet. No, you're none of that. And God loved you anyway. God didn't love, save you because you're special. He saved you in spite of the fact that you're not special. That says everything about God and very little about us. Isn't that great? You're starting to get this sense, I think, here that it's not dependent on you. And that starts to set me free just a little bit because if all I am is rough that God saved, I don't have to live up to something in order to maintain that love. And that's a better story in my opinion. And I, I used to preach this to my youth group because I knew that they were hearing these things. Oh, you're so special and that's why God loves you. No, God, you're not special and God loves you anyway. Don't try to hang your assurance of salvation on you being special. You'll get older and you'll realize you're not. And you'll start to question that whole idea. But Paul grounds our assurance in the love of God, not in who we are, but in what Christ has done. In the cross of Jesus, and so should you. How do I know God loves me? Because Jesus died on the cross for me. And you say, but I don't deserve that. Exactly, but he did it anyway. This is what I'm going to call today external assurance. This is assurance of salvation, assurance that you're loved, based on the fact that somebody loves you. Somebody truly loves you. And when you know that, there's no need for neurotic self-love. I've got to spend all my time doing things in order to make me feel lovable. And this can look a whole bunch of different ways. It can be the, you know, the example I gave earlier, that the folks that spend all their time online taking a thousand pictures of themselves and trying to make sure everybody only sees the best angles and defining themselves by how many followers they have and you know, a very, very small sliver of people that do that, but they're out there. But there's also, there's another form of doing that, which is, I'm only as good as my salary. I'm only as good as my last big success. I'm only as good as what I can earn and what I can bring home. And if I lose this job, I'm going to lose everything. External assurance. You've been loved by God. You don't have to try and find out or try to make yourself love yourself. You're already loved. And you can rest in that. Because God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 9 through 10 now. Since, therefore, we have now been saved by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So Paul returns to this attitude of hope. Really, he hasn't gone anywhere. It's a very small section, obviously, but he's talking about the hope that we have. Now, the cross assures us not just of the past, that God loved us, but it assures us of the future, that God is going to complete what he's begun. He says, since we have been justified by his blood. Justified means to be declared righteous, that the death of Jesus propitiates God's wrath, and that if you have believed on the Lord Jesus, you have been counted righteous. See, this idea keeps coming back. You're not righteous, but you're being counted righteous. You're not special, but you're being treated like you're special because God loves you. And this gives us the elimination of hostility and guilt. And we spent a lot of time talking about this last week. But Paul is also looking forward. He says, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies in the past, we were reconciled, much more shall we be saved by his life. Future. Looking forward to the ultimate consummation of salvation. This assures us that we will be saved, that we will be delivered from the wrath of God. When that judgment day comes, we can have assurance that we are going to be delivered because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And this is so basic to Christianity, it might even seem hard to grasp at first. But the reason you believe that on judgment day you'll be saved is because of what Jesus did. Revelation 20 verse 12 tells us what that judgment's going to be like. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. It's your permanent record. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And it goes on to say that if your name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, you were not saved. And they were cast into the lake of fire. That's judgment day. Your judgment can either be based upon what you've done. Let me give you a little bit of advice. That's not the way you want to go. Or it can be determined, or it can be based upon, is your name written in the book of life? Have you been counted righteous by your faith in what Jesus has done? Do you want to ground your eternity in what a good person you've been or in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? I think we know the answer to that. But that day is yet to come. And in that sense, our salvation is yet to come. This is a a very interesting thing. We don't usually talk this way, but you can see it right here. He says, since we've been justified, we shall be saved. He says it twice in verse 9 and in verse 10. The Bible very frequently talks about salvation as something that has yet to come, something that we're looking forward to. Peter, especially, you read through the epistles of Peter, he talks a lot about the coming day when we shall be saved. And this might seem uncomfortable for you, but we've got to look at it the way the Bible does. That someday you will be saved. Right now, you're looking forward to that day. But Paul is so assured that you will be saved because right now you're already reconciled. He says, based on what God has done at the cross, based on what the Holy Spirit is doing in you now, you have total assurance that when that day comes, you will be saved. Meaning judgment will come down not on you, but it'll be counted for what happened to Jesus Christ will count for your judgment. Because how do we know? We've been reconciled. And Paul uses a few different words for reconcile here, but they all spring from the root word alos, which is the Greek word that means other or another. And you can see why that would be related, right? If you are separated, you're another person. Reconcile being to bring those two things together. Things that were separated and contrary to each other. Paul said, you were separated from God. You were contrary to God. You were his enemy. And now you've been brought near under the cross. So you can rest assured that on judgment day, you're going to be all right. And Paul is the only apostle in the New Testament that uses this term reconciliation to describe salvation. The Bible uses tons of different metaphors to describe this. We've been using a legal one most of the way through this, right? Justification. But he uses this one, reconciliation. And I think the reason Paul liked to talk about reconciliation so much, to talk about being an enemy but being brought together, is because Paul had experienced that for himself. Paul had been a zealous persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee. It's good to remember this. We hear Pharisee, we know what that is. Paul was one of those guys. And he was the one that got permission from the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, to go outside of the realm of Judea and drag Christians back to be punished. And so he went off to Damascus in Syria. He was on his way there. And he was going with every intention of breaking up families, of dragging them home to be punished. And of course, the punishment for this was stoning. It was execution at the time. Paul was like the grim reaper coming down the road. Everything you've ever heard or, or believed about religious zealots and people that are, are terrorists, essentially, that's what Paul was. And yet along the way, a bright shining light and a booming sound surrounded him and he was knocked to the ground and Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And he made Saul at that moment into his apostle. Paul was saved. He realized he had been wrong about everything. And the Lord took long years to teach him that he had been wrong and to bring him to an understanding of the gospel. 
And so Paul had this attitude that says, we've been reconciled because I was an enemy. I was an attacker of the church. I was after these people, but I've been reconciled. And so that's why Paul can talk about it with such passion. He goes, if I've been reconciled to God, why would I worry about what's going to happen after my death? It's so unfortunate that there are those that believe you can't know if you're saved. There's a very dear friend of our family that was, was into a, a kind of hyper-Armenian theology, which did not believe there was any assurance of salvation of any kind. And he was the most godly man. He had preached in the church. He had, had led countless people to the Lord. And he's lying on his deathbed. And, and my grandfather speaks to him and he says, Bob, do you know that you're about to be with Jesus? And this, this godly, holy man is sitting there trembling and starts to cry and says, I wish I could know that for sure. No assurance of salvation. But you would look at that and say, listen, if, if you've been reconciled to God and you're no longer a hater of God, but you're a lover of God and you're doing his work and your life's being transformed, why would you be, be afraid? You can be assured because you've been reconciled to God. And you know, it seems like those that were the most aggressive in their lives before they got saved become the most aggressive evangelist once they've been saved, don't they? You think about a guy like Raul Reese who was a Calvary Chapel pastor, was a, gone to, was a violent man before he went to Vietnam. And while he was there, he, he had suffered some terrible things, as so many did. And, and he was basically run out of the army because people were afraid of him. He threatened to kill his commanding officer and other things. And came home and became an abuser of his wife and his children and had plans to kill them. Had a gun in his hand ready to kill them. Turns on the television and he sees Pastor Chuck Smith talking about the love of Jesus Christ and got saved right there in that moment. And he became a pastor and an evangelist. He's the one hosting the conference I'm going to be going to in a few months here. You think of guys like Nicky Cruz, who was a gangster on the streets of New York and, and wrote the story of the cross and the switchblade. And once he found the love of Jesus Christ, that God loves me and he's going to reconcile me in spite of all I've done, became a fervent advocate of the gospel. You think of a guy like even way back, Charles Finney in the 1800s. He was a mocker of the Christians. He was a lawyer. And anytime a Christian came into his office, he'd make fun of them. So why don't you go ask Jesus to take care of you? He gets saved kind of on his own in the woods. He begins to read the Bible for himself. Always a dangerous thing to do because it's a living book and it'll come for you. And he gets saved and he becomes this mighty evangelist sweeping the country with the, the revival that the effects are still talked about today. When you have experienced your reconciliation, it changes everything. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Some of y'all are sitting there, no, 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 I'm the foremost. We all know what we're like. You were an enemy of God, not a diamond in the rough, but now you've been reconciled. And what has reconciled you has been the death of his only son. You, you couldn't repair that relationship without some serious reckoning. But God said, I'll take the reckoning on myself. Because I know you can't do it. And the Lord brought you in. He took the initiative to heal the relationship. Oh, aren't when you're an enemy with somebody, isn't taking the initiative to heal the, the hardest thing? Well, if he wants to talk, I'm ready to talk. But I'm not going to him. You know that's true. You've, maybe you've tried to bring two people together and like, hey, if she apologizes, then I'll be happy to talk. Well, I'm not apologizing until she apologizes for this. And the, taking that first step is so hard, even when nations are at war with one another. And you want to come together and have a, a peace conference and end the fighting. If you're the first one to take the step, well, you look weak and everybody back home says you're betraying the country. And th so the Lord goes, you know what? I'll take the first step, even though I'm the one that's been wronged and haven't done anything. And God came in when you were unwilling to come to the table. Weren't most of you all saved and you were not looking for God? God just got hold of you. He's wiped away the record against you. He's reconciled you. So you can be confident on judgment day. Some folks believe that everything that happened before the cross and justification doesn't matter nearly as much as the petty sins you still commit after you've been saved. Isn't that ridiculous? The blood of Jesus is enough to wash away all that. And that's, we, we said before, external insurance. This is internal assurance. Number one is somebody loves you. That's external. The internal thing is it does not matter that you do not deserve that love. Somebody loves me. I don't deserve love. Doesn't matter. That's internal and external. 
Because you can say, oh, Jesus loves me. And you think, I don't deserve to be loved. Look at all the things I've done. Look at the people I've hurt. Look at the lies that I tell. Look at the sins that I commit. It doesn't matter. God reconciled you when you were yet a sinner. He says, if, if you were saved before you were even a Christian, what, what makes you think that you're going to have something to deal with on Judgment Day? You do not need to worry about measuring up. So many people say, well, I've been saved, therefore now I've got to measure up. No, no, no. The slate has been wiped clean for you. You've been reconciled to God. So we get to verse 11 now. More than that. You mean there's more? Oh, yes. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. This is the attitude of the Christian. You're supposed to be rejoicing. And we talked about this last time. We're going to talk about it some more. Rejoicing in what Christ has done. Rejoicing in the present status that you now have. Really, it's sad that so many of us as Christians walk around with a big frown on our face like you're not going to heaven someday. Well, don't you know all the trouble in the world? Don't you know that Jesus died on the cross and loves you and he's going to send his Holy Spirit to fill you and he's going to take you to heaven someday? Here's another buzzword that has entered our, our common parlance today. I talked about self-esteem earlier. Here's another one. Mental health. This is something else that is also important. Right? There are those that have serious mental issues, and we do not want to be dismissive of those things. So I'm not dismissive of those things. But I am going to say this. Our obsession with mental health as a term has become for most, not all, did I say all? I didn't. For most people, it has become an excuse to stay fragile in their mind. It has become an excuse to not do the right thing. It has become an excuse to not live up to the pressure that everybody else goes through. Because if we can say, well, I need some time for my mental health, it, it kind of deflects any kind of criticism from coming our way. And there are lots of people that do that. There are so many people, and I, I'm, I'm talking about people I know that I can name to you, friends of mine, who have gone to seek therapy or gone in for a medication to fix their mental health only to receive a diagnosis that shackles them for the rest of their life. I have been in counseling with more than a few young men who tell me about, you know, their parents want me to talk to them and help my kid. Can you please help my kid? And like, I can do anything, you know? And, and they say, hey, we talk to him. And I say, you got to control your temper, man. I can't control my temper. I have crazy aggressive temper disorder. I'm dead. I can't, I can't control my temper. You've got to stop letting things, these things get to you so much. Well, I have di been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, so I can't. And have refused to try. And in, in some cases, use it as an excuse. I blew up and yelled at my girlfriend and I hit her across the mouth. And I said, you've got to leave that guy. Well, he's been diagnosed with, with this. So therefore, you know, I, I can't get mad at him for it. That happens all the time. The hardest people to bring to an understanding of the gospel are people who have been so therapized that they've got an answer for everything. And let me just say this. Most of the things that we see as, as what's the word? as sicknesses or illnesses that we have, they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. I'm anxious. You now have anxiety disorder. No, you're anxious. We're describing the way you feel and calling it something. So now you feel like you've got a label and sometimes these things can be like heavy weights that bear people down and they feel like they can never get out from under it or they get hooked on medication. And I've, I've mentioned this before, so I'll say the same thing I say every time. I have beloved, dear, best friends of mine who were medicated by their parents at a very early age and are now messed up. And do they have an excuse? No. But they've been on pills since they were 12, 11, 9, 8 years old. And people wonder why they, they won't take responsibility for their lives. Because they've been told the whole life, the reason you act the way you do is because you're sick. Here's a pill. You can't help yourself. You can't help yourself until you take your medicine. Say it again. Do some people need some of that thing? Sure. Most of us don't. Most of us don't. In fact, almost all of us don't. We become dependent on this stuff. And there are, you know, I think there are some healthcare professionals that are going to have to answer for this someday. 
Rather than helping somebody, here's a pill. Rather than telling them, you know, I, I think there are therapists that are going to have to answer for this too. Christian counselors that are going to have to answer for this. That somebody comes in and here's my problem. Sometimes the answer is, there's nothing to say here. You need to get over this. We do this. We become, we, we give power to these concerns that we have. When we're anxious or we're depressed, these are real things. When we're stressed out, rather than give them over to the Lord and face them and overcome them, we look for a shortcut. We look for somebody to tell us you can't get over it, so stop bothering. Look for somebody who says, I've got some pills for you that'll make you not have to worry about it anymore. How that's any different than going out and getting drunk or smoking dope would have to be explained to me. Now listen, again, are there some people where this is real serious and you really need these things? Yes, most of us don't. And I will say this. I not only believe that Jesus Christ is able to heal the body, Jesus Christ is able to heal the mind too. And I have seen in this life, my life, how the gospel of Jesus Christ, properly understood, will liberate you from these things. And the Bible tells us that you can be full of joy, you can overcome fear, you can overcome anxiety, probably phrasing it wrong. You can't overcome anything. But the Lord God is able to overcome those things in you by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to hear a Bible verse that most people would probably consider really insensitive and politically incorrect today? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. That's really unfair to ask people because people are struggling with these things. And you don't understand how hard it is, Paul. And you don't know. Of course, Paul was being driven out of every city and was being beaten in the streets. And Paul was... was hunted down by certain people and falsely accused and thrown into prison. But he says, do not be anxious about anything. He was actually writing this from prison, by the way. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How would you like the peace of God to be standing watch over your mind and your heart? And nothing's getting in there. And people scoff at that. Prayer, you're telling me prayer can overcome those things? Yes. And you say, well, I prayed and nothing happened. Well, let me ask you, did you pray or did you just go before God and complain for 30 minutes? Here's my list of things, God. Or did you say, Lord, I'm going to hand these things over to you and train my mind? By turning to God and setting your mind on those things, you can overcome any mental sorrow. I do not hesitate to say that. The cross is able to overcome any mental, emotional, spiritual struggle that you have. I believe that. I know that it's true. Because the cross is the grandest demonstration of love that does not depend upon you. The cross takes your assurance and love and happiness and joy and places its source outside of yourself. Because if it depends on you, you're like a roller coaster or an elevator that's busted. You're going up and down. But the cross never changes. It is the only foundation for true peace and true confidence and true joy and true happiness. You don't need to drum up faux self-love for yourself. And you say things like, well, I've just got to make sure that I feel happy about all these things. How? Well, I'm going to tell myself that I'm great. And I'm not going to listen to anybody that tells me I'm not great. How about what he says in verse 11? We can rejoice. How'd you like to rejoice? Remember the word for this is boast. How'd you like to be able to boast in the Lord? To be able to boast in your joy and rest in him. Isaiah 26.3 says, The Lord keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. You can keep your mind on the Lord and the things of God. Perfect peace is waiting for you. There are those that believe perfect peace is impossible. The perfect peace is an unfair goal to lay before people. Well, listen, I'm no doctor, but I'm a preacher of the gospel, and I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is able to give you perfect peace. If you've been reconciled to God, you have that outer assurance, God loves you. And you have internal assurance that says, it doesn't matter if I'm not worthy of that love. It's untouchable. Now every assault that comes against you, you go, talk to him. Talk to Jesus. The more you understand that gospel, you understand the reconciliation that's been made for you. You don't have to go online scrolling through trying to find out what's wrong with your brain. 
You just come to Jesus. That's another problem, by the way. We self-diagnose ourselves. Then we go and ask for medicine and we're given it. But the Lord says, how about you just come talk to me? How about you just come and let me tell you what's true about you and what's true about me? That's why we sing that song, I am who you say I am. And people will say, oh, that's a selfish song. Shouldn't sing songs like that. You sing that song, No Longer Slaves, right? I am a child of God. And we say it over and over again. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And, you know, there are some grumpy folks that don't like any new songs since like 1400 that have been written. (laughs) Why are songs like that so popular now? Consider this. That song, Good, Good Father, was the most popular worship song ever when it came out. Why is that? Because you had the most fatherless generation the world had ever seen who resonated with a song describing God as their good, good father. It's the same thing with I am who you say I am because I know what I'm like and I'm no good. And I go over there and they tell me I'm like this. And I talk to mom and she tells me that I should be on pills. And I talk to her over there and she says, you just got to block out the haters and love yourself. And I don't know what to think, but I come to Jesus Christ and he says, I know that you're rotten, but I love you anyway. How'd you like to know that none of that matters? that I can save you. That's reconciliation between you and God. There's no more existential horror that we all have to go through. You know, I read some of these things that people write about sometimes. Don't you love when people say things like, we all know, or we all go through, and we all understand. And, you know, we were joking about some people that say things like that politically this morning. But, like, Atheists will say that. We all know the horror of life and knowing that we're so small and we don't matter. And the end is coming like, I don't know what that's like. Because I belong to Christ Jesus. The Bible says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and God handcrafted me in my mother's womb. And we say, well, why would people be opposed to a message like that? Because if you see other people walking in joy and you don't think there's anything possible, that joy doesn't even exist, you get angry and you want to tear it down. Why do we do that as people? I don't know. But when we see people with something that we don't have, that we want, but we refuse to get, we just want to tear them down. But that's what Jesus Christ gives you. Joy. Unspeakable joy, the Bible says. The Bible called something unspeakable. And that's the joy of the Lord. The peace that passes all understanding. What does that mean? Peace that don't make no sense. How can you have peace? Don't you know we're in a worldwide pandemic? Don't you know that the the political structure is falling to pieces? Don't you know that, I don't know, murder hornets are coming over from (laughs) Japan or whatever it is? Like, perfect peace. Peace doesn't sell. Anger and, and neurotic fear sells. But the Lord says, I'm not selling you anything. I'm just coming to offer you my peace freely. And you know what's so wonderful? Talking about reconciliation. When we experience that, it changes our whole life. Everything is just brand new. But all around you are people that don't have that. You work with those people. Maybe you live with some of those people. You have neighbors that are like that. You have family members. You, you see it on TV. You hear it on the airwaves. That they don't have any of that peace. And this is why they have to resort to things like I was talking about. Because they don't know Jesus. And then there are even some pastors that, that constantly work to erode people's foundation and what's been done for them because they're trying to get a few more hands in the air so that they can report them to the denomination and say, we had 10 more decisions this week. Or others that are afraid that if I tell people that God loves them and that grace has covered them, they might start sinning. So I've got to make sure they stay afraid all the time, which is, Paul is not, you watch till we get to chapter 7. Paul is willing to say some things that can make y'all squirm in your seats about how saved you are. So what is our job for those people? What do we do for people like that? Well, if we have been reconciled to God, you have been given the task of seeking to bring that same reconciliation to other people. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, Paul said this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that is you, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. So when the devil comes to you and he says, don't you know what you've done? You've sinned. You go, that doesn't count. Oh, he says, no, no, no. He says, not counting my trespasses against me. My sins don't count. It's like when you're playing horse with a little kid and they shoot and miss. Oh, that one didn't count. Your sins don't count. And he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation at this time was especially a political term. That this king was going to bring these two kingdoms together, usually by conquering the other one. Alexander the Great called himself the reconciler of the world. Like, you didn't reconcile much, bro. You just kind of (laughs) conquered everything. Yeah, I'm bringing all of us under one culture, under one king, under one name. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who's the great reconciler? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bringing us all into his kingdom. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we are ambassadors of that king. Going around and telling people, you are an enemy of the Lord, but I've got good news. You can be reconciled to God right now, today. You have the privilege of bringing that message to other people and watching their hearts heal. There is nothing more glorious than somebody that is trapped in fear and anxiety and depression and whatever else, and you bring the message that God made you special and he loves you very much, and watching their whole countenance just change in an instant. Usually the hardest thing is, is, is not believing it, but accepting it. And you'll sit there struggling, and like, if I believe that, you, there's like fear attached from accepting that. I don't know why that is. Well, I do. It's, it's the enemy. It's the Satan that's coming after us. Because of the love shown to you, you show that love to other people. You go out not asking anything from anybody. You say, how can I love you today? What can I give you that isn't going to cost you a thing? You show them that they have more reasons to be at peace than anything they've ever read or heard about because the Lord loves them. But not only that, because you love them. They spend their whole life trying to figure out, okay, I've got to love myself because not anybody else is going to love me. You come along and you say, I love you. You don't even know me. doesn't matter. I love you anyway. And then slowly over time, you demonstrate, no, they actually, I think they actually might love me. I think they might actually care about me. You ever known somebody that was so broken they couldn't even recept, receive love from somebody? And they go out of their way to push people away and you say, I love you so much and I want to do something for you. And then, well, what are you after? And then they yell and throw things, and you get off my lawn. I don't want to see you talking to him again. I don't want to see you talking to her again. And, but over time, they'll just have a day out of the blue where they come up to you and they go, so what is your deal? Well, I, Jesus Christ taught me to love people, so I'm going to love you right back. All right, well, let's talk. And all of a sudden, you're, this person's whole life is being unfolded before you. Because we believe that the gospel is sufficient, and the world loves to give their sins and their neuroses power. Said this thing that happened to me dominates my life. My whole life can be explained by the fact that my mother didn't treat me very well when I was a kid. My whole life can be explained by the fact that I lost somebody and that dominates my whole world. My whole life can be explained by this sin that I committed and now my whole life it's going to follow me. But we come in and say, would you like to have all of that erased and be counted righteous? It's not possible. Well, that's what God offers you. Well, that sounds cheap. Oh, it's not cheap. It cost God everything. It cost him the death of his only son. But because his son was God in the flesh, he couldn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. The Lord Lord is ready to deliver and set us free. By rejoicing in and meditating on and believing these things, your whole life will change. Your whole mind will change. Your whole heart will change. And I'm not saying it happens in an instant. Sometimes it does, and that's so wonderful. But for my case... It was constant, deliberate practice of believing what the Lord had done for me. That passage in Philippians that I read where he said, do not be anxious. He goes on to say, set your mind. And he talked about all the kinds of things you're supposed to think about and all the things you're not supposed to think about. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report. Think about the things that I've taught you, Paul said. If you come in here and say, I love coming to church because every time we're here, we're singing about salvation and we're praying together and people are showing love to me and I'm, I'm, I'm happy and I'm at peace here. And then I leave and I don't have any of that. Well, check out your habits out there. You can do all the stuff you're doing here out there, you know. You can worship the Lord anywhere. You can pray anywhere. What kind of friends do you have? Are they friends that build you up in the Lord or are they friends that undo everything that happens Sunday morning? I've only got you for one, maybe two hours a week. How many hours do you spend listening to somebody else? Not about me. It's about the gospel I'm talking about here. Even some believers will do this. They spend all, well, I listen to Bible studies all week long. What kind of Bible studies? Well, I listen to really angry debates about secondary matters in the church. Well, of course that's going to make you scared and angry and skittish of the things of God. Because you only ever encounter it as, as a battle and as a fight. 
You never take time to just rest in the Lord. And sometimes people have even come up to me, and when I talk about the joy of the Lord, they say, that's not what people need to hear. They need to be told to get out there and, and get in the fight. I'm like, what fight? This is the fight. The fight that you're fighting is over your soul and your spirit. And the enemy loves to convince you that getting all worked up and abandoning the joy of the Lord is more spiritual than resting in what he's done. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, there's a long chapter, but Nehemiah, they, they bring out the law. They've, they've been rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, and they say, you know what? Let's get that Bible out and let's read it. And then they start to read it, and it said all the people started to weep. You know why? Because they realized they had not done any of that stuff. And they thought, we, we got exiled for 70 years because we didn't keep this book. Now we're back, and we're still not keeping the book. And you can do that all day long. I could, every week I could come in here and point out something you're not doing that isn't right and make you feel really bad about it and make you weep and cry and you always say, oh, you're such an anointed preacher, Tyler, and all I'm really doing is playing to your fears and to your concerns. But you know what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah stood up and he said, everyone stop weeping. We're going to have a party. Everybody's going to go home. You're going to kill the fatted calf. You're going to drink the new wine. You're going to celebrate because this is a joyful day because the Lord has shown us what is right and given us the chance to do it. And he gives that wonderful phrase that I love so much. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Hear that, Christian. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So if you're wondering why you're so weak in the things of God and you're so susceptible to what the world throws at you, are you walking in joy or are you walking in fear? Have you been told that it's more spiritual to be upset than it is to be full of peace? Have you been told that it's more righteous to be angry at the wicked than to be in love with the Lord God? Have you been told that it's more spiritual to weep and cry over your sins than to rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus, that my sins don't count anymore? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Christianity is not about wallowing in grief. It's about training your mind. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 12. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to think differently than you used to think. To know that you've been set free and none of that rest of that stuff matters. You're not damaged goods. You're healed and you're whole in Christ Jesus. Training yourself to believe what you believe. And there are some times, and I, know, I can talk about this from experience, when you're in the, under the attack of the enemy and you're dealing with all the stress and fear and anxiety and all that stuff, all the reassuring doctrines of the faith become like fearful to you. You think, well, now listen, God's been really on me about all the sins that I commit. And this passage here is all about how God loves me and died for my sins. If I start thinking about that, I'm ignoring what God's telling me, which is that I'm a bad person, and he'll get mad, and that, that basically is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Is that how the Lord works? Is that how Jesus dealt with people? When, when, when prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners came to Jesus, did he say, do you know what you've done? No, what did he do? He said, your sins are forgiven. And what did the Pharisees do? Don't you know what she does? You wouldn't even let that woman touch you if you knew what she did. And Jesus goes, yeah, but she wants to be forgiven, and I'm ready to offer that to her. You know who Jesus shook his finger in the face of? People that didn't think they needed anything from God. People that wanted to challenge Jesus and talk about the law and how righteous and pompous they were and say Jesus is only casting out demons because he's full of devils himself. Those are the ones that he came in and said, you whitewashed tomb. You look so great on the outside, but you open up on the inside and you're full of dead men's bones. So why do we think that that's how God deals with us? The Lord sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. You are loved. You are so loved that it, it, it shakes the cosmos from top to bottom. And it doesn't matter if you haven't lived up to it. Because he died for you when you were still a sinner. Well, I still sin sometimes. Those don't count. You've been reconciled to God. You know, psychologists identified the importance of having confidence and peace and love, right? They know that those things are important. That's not that hard to figure out, but it's true. But they were unable to provide any solution other than self-esteem and self-love and self-reliance. It's okay, it's really good for people to feel loved. So be loved. <laughs> Nobody really loves me. Well, love yourself then. Now listen, is there a place that you're not always down on yourself all the time? Yeah, sure, okay. 
but they had an identification of the problem, but they had no solution for it. Because people who say, okay, I'm supposed to like be esteem myself, but I've not done anything. There's nothing worth esteeming about me other than just being just like everybody else. The gospel, though, comes in and is much more honest. Like, yes, you should feel good about yourself, but here's the problem. You're not good and there's nothing worth loving about you. Well, that just sounds really morbid. How could you teach that to your kids? Because we're not done. There's a more robust solution. The Lord said, I'm going to send my son to die and take all the penalty that you know you deserve. I used to tell this to young kids that would struggle with cutting and with self-harm and things like that. They, that feel, there's a whole mind thing that goes into that, but who feel like I, I deserve this and I need to feel this pain. Like, Jesus took all that for you. Every stripe that you feel like you deserve was put upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, you are wonderfully made in God's image, but you're also a rebel and a sinner. But God loved you so much, he did everything that was necessary to reconcile and justify you. Not you, plural, you individually. Because some of y'all are hearing that and going, yep, yep, there's some people that need to hear this. No, 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 you need to hear this. Not me, though, because God told me that I'm a special case that doesn't count. No, no you're not. You are equally loved. And Jesus died for you equally. So you should feel confident as a Christian. There's no existential horror hanging over your life. Death is a transition from glory to glory, the Bible says. And you should be happy. There's other, you know, pseudo-spiritual people. People think God just wants you to be happy. Okay, yeah, there's more to it than that. But the Lord still wants you to be happy. We sing that song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. To walk around with a smile on your face, full of the joy of the Lord, a joy unspeakable. People look at you and say, what's your deal? Don't you know? Oh, yes, I totally know. But do you know? I've got good news. Bad news is really big business, but good news will change your life. You should feel blessed. Not because you're great, and certainly not by ignoring your flaws. There's a whole other lesson that we can learn about handling the things you're dealing with. But this is all about trusting that God loved you in spite of all that. I'm an awful person. I've committed this sin. I did this. I broke that person's heart and I brought this pain into the world. And God goes, yes, you did. And Jesus took all of that on the cross. It's already been paid for. Wouldn't it be kind of silly if, you know, you paid off your credit card and, and you call the credit card company and you say, I'm so sorry. I was so irresponsible. I spent way too much money and I, I never should have bought those five jet skis. And, you know, and they, but sir, your balance is zero. I know, but... Don't you know how awful that was? And I shouldn't have done it. And I, would, I knew better and I did it. But sir, sir, your balance is zero. I know that. But I really feel like if I just accept that, then I haven't learned my lesson. But you don't owe us anything. We're like that with God. And God, I'm so sorry. And God's like, I already forgave you for that. But I still feel bad. And the Lord goes, well, stop feeling bad. But if I stop feeling bad, that means I don't recognize it was serious. No, it doesn't. The Lord wants to set you free from that stuff. To walk in grace that your whole life is grace. You've been welcomed into the grace of God. External assurance. You are loved by God. And internal assurance. It doesn't matter that you don't deserve it. And now you have been sent out to be for somebody else what Jesus Christ is for you. To give people the same joy and peace that you enjoy. That simple phrase that makes all the difference. Somebody loves you.